Get ready for Mental Flock with Jeff and Bishop. Grab your snacks. It's about to get real. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Mental Flog. This is the official episode one. Yay. This is the rise of the Phoenix season, right, Jeff? Well, I think these ones are more the, the fall of the Phoenix because this is our tower moments. This is when it all goes to hell. I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, I guess technically we're calling it Phoenix Rising, but uh, it, it has to fall before it can rise. True. This episode is recorded in front of a live teddy bear audience in my daughter's bedroom so as not to take over the kitchen space for all the roommates during this evening recording after work. Because we're considerate and shit. And uh, it's uh, 7.17 in the p.m. on 8.15 when we're recording this, and I'm all jacked up on coffee and Jeff is drinking sadness. Yeah, I got my diet green tea mixed berry. Yeah, the word diet did not equal yummy. No, trying to like eat better and stuff. All right, everybody. So uh, before we kick this thing off officially, I need to give a shout out to uh, the Utah Singles Chat and Social Group, which can be found on Facebook. If you are a Utah native, go ahead and check those guys out. I uh, I might possibly be able to be found in that group. And uh, there's some pretty fun people in there. It's a good chat experience. All right. So uh, once again, this is going to be Jeff's Tower episode. This is when the wheels fall off. You know, the plane crashes, nobody survives except for Jeff. Yep. All right, so uh, to kick this off, Jeff, do you have a card for us this evening? Yes, the, the card that I pulled for today is the Nine of Cups. So the Nine of Cups, you know, as the traditional artwork has it, is you have this John Travolta-looking guy, and he's sitting on this kind of uncomfortable-looking wooden bench. And he's got these Nine Cups all lined up behind him, you know. They're all, you know, like full. So it's just about everything in his life seems to be going right. But he's, you know, sitting on that uncomfortable bench and he's just like, there's just that one thing that's missing. There's just that one piece that's missing. So Nine of Cups kind of represents that that stage in life where everything seems to be going well, but there's just something missing and you can't like put your finger on what it is. And at that point, well, you could go a few different directions. That uh, That feels kind of fitting for tonight, doesn't it? Oh, a little bit, yeah, because I think, you know, when I'm seeing how this card applies to my own life and my tower moment, I think that Nine of Cups was on the surface with a lot of things that were going on. I think people took a look at me and were like, okay, yeah, he's he's got it all together. Well, ish. You know, it wasn't like I was rolling in the dough or anything like that, but I mean, you know, had like a long, steady marriage, had a house, you know, had a car, two dogs. Like, we entertained on a regular basis, you know, we were we were the, the place where people converged, and we were involved in many different social causes and things like that, but then, it all went to hell. It, uh, it really does crack me up how much our stories parallel, because, I mean, same, back in the day, I was running Utah Chive, people were always coming over, we were always doing a charity for something, and, uh, on the surface, everything looked great. So before we dive into your tower, I get to torture you with my guest questions. Oh, fun. You ready for this? Okay, what do we got? Question number one. What was your first car? My first car was a 1977 Buick Century. It was the family car, and the damn thing was a big boat. <laughs> Sometimes those are the most fun. Oh, yeah, and... Well, you know, we were teenagers in the small town of Tooele, Utah. Absolutely nothing to do. So 
So I'm at at the time when I was a teenager, we had the highest teen pregnancy rate in the entire nation. They actually sent the federal government to come and investigate what was going on in Tooele because of how high the teen pregnancy rate was. Well, it sounds like they found something to do. Some did anyway, but yeah, your 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 options were pretty much, you know, you get pregnant at a young age, you do meth, or you do fuck all, which is what we did. Sounds like possibly the safer choice. Oh yeah. So we became the D&D house. We were the the place where all of the nerds converged and because I mean there was nothing else to do. There was at least that. So like every weekend we had the house full of all of the nerds that existed within Tooele County to play D&D and other games like that. So while home wasn't always the happiest place, it wasn't prison. Well, I mean, let's face it, Tooele is the place where dreams go to die. <laughs> My childhood wasn't all roses for sure. Like we didn't have a whole lot growing up I and mean, you know looking back at it like we i'm like objectively we were fucking poor grew up very strict lds or mormon for you know our people listening outside of the state of utah if we have any of those yet my parents they tried but it wasn't always exactly a happy a happy health household um i grew up in a family full of rage addicts and with that my problem the thing is that i find that i'm still working through is effective conflict resolution. And this is part of my tower moment and part of how things fell apart is because I, you know, uh, growing up around people who were constantly flying off the handle and every little thing would just like make them explode. The only way that I learned to deal with conflict was to just shut down. Throughout my relationships and things like that, I would have a problem with stonewalling, dissociating. And this is, you know, part of, I say, you know, I had a 13 year marriage and people say, well, you know, that's, you know, a good long time for marriage. But, you know, um, I found throughout that marriage, we would constantly be saying like, well, you know, we never fight. Now, if somebody ever tells me now that, you know, in their relationship, they never fight, that's a red flag. Agreed. So I, uh, I have three questions for you, but I think I'm just going to stick with this one so I can torture you with the other ones later. Okay. <laughs> but uh, let's keep going. I feel like we're okay. going in a good direction here. So, so yeah, that was really kind of how it all began as far as my tower moment, you know, 13 year marriage, but was young, dumb and Mormon when we got married, which is a lot to do with why it fell apart. That and the fact that both of us, uh, my ex-wife and I kind of came from dysfunctional households. Your marriage should not be the place where you learn emotional intelligence, especially your marriage falling apart should not be the catalyst to where you start learning emotional intelligence. For me, unfortunately, that's what it took. But really, it was... A lot of it does go back to the LDS church. First, it was my, my ex-wife that started questioning things, doing research, and eventually decided, hey, like, I cannot in good conscience be part of this religion any longer. And at that point, I had to do a lot of soul-searching, because I'm like, well, I love this person, but with this, you know, religion that I'm in, this religion that I was, like, raised in, forced upon me, literally like beaten into me growing up. I mean, literally beaten into me. Like, yeah, it was like, yeah, I had to do some soul searching there and ask myself, do I stick with my religion and exit this marriage at this point? Or do I love this woman enough to hear her out and try to understand where she's coming from? Trying to like meet her on that bridge, I started doing my own research. And when you start asking questions... Well, eventually my shelf broke. 
That is a very LDS term. <laughs> yeah, you're shelf breaking. That's just, you know, the, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. And you know, without going too far into it, it was, I, I think the thing that broke the camel's back for me was I remember when we were starting to go a little inactive, um, we had issues in, uh, in being able to have children. Members from the church would come over and they'd be like, well, you guys like, you know, having these fertility issues and obviously you're not faithful enough. Obviously you're not righteous enough. Otherwise God would be blessing you. And we notice you haven't been coming to church. So we think we need to give you guys a position like teaching, teaching these, these Sunday school classes to little kids, to four-year-olds. And I think the, the moment in which I just kind of broke was I was supposed to give a lesson to four-year-olds about how they were going to go to hell if they if they don't obey their parents and if they don't love Jesus. That uh, seems like a tough pill to swallow for sure. Yeah, I came home that you know I came home after after church that day and was kind of beside myself. I started doing a lot more research and just slowly but surely was like, yeah, like I I've been lied to my whole life. This isn't for me. Now, but, when you hit this point, were you angry? Oh, very much so. That is a very common trait with anybody that seems to leave the LDS religion is the first thing they do is they have a shit ton of anger and it comes out everywhere on everyone. But for me, like anger is something that I have a hard time dealing with because growing up in a family full of rage addicts, you know, being the middle children were the ones that had to be the mediators, were the ones that, you know, and being able to, to express anger at all even to this this age in my 40s, it's still like very difficult being able to learn how to be able to express that in a, in a healthy way. Um, anytime that that anger would come up, it would just be passive aggressive, snapping, or just shutting down, dissociating. This kind of started the spiral because at that point, my ex-wife and I, we left the LDS church. Then it's a, well, now what? Trying to figure out you know, who we really are, what it is that we really believe. Now, how old were you when, when you left? I was 25. So you and, and your ex-wife left the thing that you'd both been raised in and you'd known for 25 years. Yep, exactly. Which is a huge shift in lifestyle. It really is coming from somebody who's experienced it. Oh, most definitely. We, once we stepped away from that, trying to figure out who we are, what it is that we actually believe, it's just there's just a void there. I think the best way I could describe this for somebody who hasn't personally experienced this, imagine you're a teenager with adult money and adult freedom and no direction. Oh, exactly. And I'd say with this, you find um, when you're going through these traumatic events, because like, let, let's be honest with what a lot of us experience in the LDS church, it is a forced religious trauma. And until the time that you step away from that, it is you are in a state of arrested development. And so, you know, at 25, leaving the church at 25, pretty much all the things that a lot of other people get to experience, like in 25 years up to then, like now you're having to play catch-up. So it's exactly like you said. It's like you're an adult with adult money. As far as developmentally, you're still kind of a teenager. This is where a lot of the trouble got into because it became, uh, well, let's experiment. We have to figure out what we're all about we have to figure out how to fill this void somehow so with this with nothing being off the table anymore of course the natural things were first coffee and then okay well 
let's go into like the world of alcohol, you know, just make sure that we're not getting out of control with this. Um, we started making, as we started becoming more involved in the community, we started uh, making more colorful friends in different communities that, you know, burners, you know, the Gothic community, those kind of. All the people your bishop wouldn't want you to associate with. Exactly. And with that, um, we had friends that introduced us to, you know, drugs and things like that. And um, we did experiment um, with, with things in that regard. You know, nothing that went too terribly off the rails there. Where we got into trouble was all of these people that we were surrounding ourselves with um, had a lot of friends that were polyamorous. The conversation surrounding that, I mean, over the years, at first it was just kind of joking around, kind of laughing at it like, yeah, that would never work. Throughout the years, eh, I don't know, maybe. Eventually, she decided that she did want to open the relationship. And I was dumb enough to be like, okay. And that's really kind of the beginning of the end of of the marriage. Because there was a lot that was unspoken that led up to that moment. And as I would find out later on, the whole point of opening up the relationship was because when when we were saying, yeah, we never fought, it's because there was a lot of resentment building up. It's because anytime that she would try to approach me with something that was upsetting her or whatnot, like I would shut down, I would stonewall. And it just built up and built up and built up. So for the 13 years that we were together, I want to say probably like the last six or more, she wasn't happy. Kind of the final fight in which we knew, yeah, this is over. Things had gotten to a point where uh, there was a separation. It left me in a situation to where I was having to stay in a friend's apartment. Not a good situation. Like I had previously been couch surfing. She said, well... This isn't how anything, this is, wasn't how any of this was supposed to go down. I'm like, and I'm so stressed out right now. And I'm like, you're stressed out? Like, you know, what about me? And like, I have been left financially ruined. Like, I am practically homeless. Like, I'm squatting in somebody's apartment. I've been having a couch surf. Can't get an apartment anywhere because I've got two dogs that are restricted breed. So, like, you, you tell me, when you say this isn't how any of this was supposed to go down, how was it supposed to go down? She admitted that this was part of her plan was in opening up the marriage. The idea was she would eventually meet somebody and she could move on. And then I would meet somebody and then I could move on. We could go both cars separate ways without anybody getting hurt. That's definitely not how it went down at all. Kind of backing up a bit. We first kind of dipped our toes into the water with the world of polyamory. Um, Learned a lot of things the hard way about that world. Probably one of the first uh, things that you learn the hard way when you don't really have a guidebook or anything is don't date people who used to be your friends. It's a good rule. So we tried going that route. Um, that did not end well. Of course, you know, I got my heart broken right out of the gate. It was fairly traumatic. But then as we were kind of getting our bearings, you know, learning things a little bit more, getting involved in the, the polyamory community, actually doing research and, you know, and trying to make a better go of it. I was the first one that was, that uh, had a serious partner, um, aside from my wife. And then eventually, oh, she would meet other guys and she took on a couple of uh, other partners aside from me. And then I eventually took on a third partner. One, another rule about uh, polyamory that they don't tell you that's a harsh reality is that 
when you're trying to juggle all of these different relationships, if you have just one of those relationships that's toxic, all of your relationships now become toxic. This is a true fact I've experienced. This was a very toxic situation, and I didn't quite understand what was going on because um, when I started dating this woman, she pulled me in. She pulled me in hard. She was buttering me up, like telling me how awesome and great and amazing I am. Within three weeks in, was telling me that she was in love with me. And within three months into the relationship, she was talking about how she was wanting to start a family. But at this point, up until this point, I was closed off to the idea entirely. It's like I'd been married all of these years. We had fertility issues throughout the marriage. Gotten used to the idea that this is something that's not going to happen. So, no. But this other woman that I was involved with, well, uh, her other main partner um, was, was a lesbian couple. Two of them were married. And she was saying, well... I want to get pregnant eventually. Like, I want to have a child. So, whether it comes from you, whether it comes from a sperm donor, one way or another, like, I want to have a child, and my wife and I are primarily going to be the ones that raise it. Three months in, she's starting to change the story a little bit. She's, like, trying to drag me into the story more and more. Like, you know, like, I really want to have a child at some point. Like... I could see us having a family together and so on and so forth. And I was like, okay, I'm a little bit leery about this idea. But As the, you should be. Yep, exactly. So, you know, like red flags going off in my mind already at that point, but I didn't understand, you know, red flags or I didn't understand what was happening to me at that time. Well, I mean, it, it sounds like you were in a place where you were probably very emotionally vulnerable. Oh, indeed. But... Emotions and I, this is still something that like I, I have a hard time when it comes to my own emotions. Growing up um, in an abusive household, you know, being bullied for being overweight or things like that, you just, you learn to kind of just shut off your emotions. It's your defense mechanism. Trying to carry that over into romantic relationships. And so when you've got, you know, rage addicts um, in the household that you grew up in, and then you're bullied throughout school and just everything there is just you know you just shut down those emotions you don't let them get the better of you and then how does that play out um later on in your romantic relationships i imagine not very well at all oh not well at all so yeah there was a huge degree of emotional immaturity on my part i admit when it came to this i didn't know what was going on i didn't understand that i was being manipulated the way that things played out here, because first, um, kind of the, the first big thing was she had already expressed she wanted to have a child. There's a situation in which there was an oops. It's like, okay, no big deal. Like, I'll go to Planned Parenthood tomorrow. I'll get a morning after pill. Came back with the pill, and there was a meltdown. Like, I didn't understand what was going on. Like, why is there a huge freak out? And wound up having to get my wife, and then my other partner on the phone, everybody kind of came over, tried to talk her down. She eventually took the pill, but she held that against me. So there would be times where um, I'd be laying in bed with her, you know, trying to get romantic or whatnot, and then she would turn away and be like, well, babe, what's wrong? What's going on? She's like, well, I was just thinking about the child that we would have had if I didn't take that pill. 
Do you do you think you had an accident and she had it on purpose? No, with that one it was it was straight up an accident. It was just um, you know, we're maybe getting a little personal, but you know, it it was a a condom that came off. So we were trying to be careful, but it was a legitimate oops. It wasn't that part wasn't uh like it wasn't manipulation yeah, that, that time. That wasn't a manipulation on her end. Okay. But after that, you know, like holding the, having to take that pill over my head, kind of pushing harder on the, well, like, I want like more of, you know, a higher level of commitment. She's like, you know, I'm married to another woman. And for the first eight years of our 10 year marriage, like our marriage was illegal. So as far as I'm concerned, like I want to be your other wife. You can imagine how that pissed off my, my ex-wife. And, and I mean, I'm just saying, we both came from an LDS <laughs> background here. <laughs> right? So, so, but with this, it's, you know, there's all kinds of different variations of polyamory and whatnot. And um, even though what we were trying to do is what they call a non-hierarchical polyamory, where it's a, like all partners have equal say. That never like, works. In my but, experience, that never works. In general, like at this stage of my life, I applaud anybody that can make polyamory work. Like I am like strictly monogamous now because of what I've gone through and my misadventures. It's trying to make one relationship work is difficult enough. But when I was trying to juggle three relationships, I mean, I had a therapist at one point who I was telling him the story and he was laughing. And he felt bad about it, but I was laughing with him like he's I'm like it's like, I'm so sorry. Like, I shouldn't be laughing. I'm like, no, it's okay. I'm laughing with you. He's like, in my 20 years of being a therapist, I've never heard a story this crazy. It's like, you had, you were in three relationships. You had three women. This is something that, like, men dream about. But the way that everything went down, like, this is a complete and total nightmare. Like, how did you get yourself into that mess? <laughs> so, but yeah, there was, you know, holding the, having to use the morning after pill over my head trying to like rope me in further like i want more of a commitment like i want you to be my husband even though you know you're already married but hey you know what we're doing is outside of the the realms of normal anyway so fuck society like i want us to all be like this big happy family like all of us together we're gonna all raise children together it's gonna be like this huge polyamorous like commune type situation and the more that she well the more that she tried to sell it the you know the the more that i'm like eh, okay well maybe that's not such a bad idea after all but then she was like okay well i really want to get pregnant i'm like okay well let's wait for like other things to happen first before we go there and she's like no i want it to happen like sooner rather than later it's like i've already been talking to my wife about this we're thinking about going to california um, and we're going to go see a sperm bank there. Like, um, okay, I guess I'll stand by you and support you while you're doing that. And then, well, they had another, uh, another male roommate that had lived with them for several years. And this was part of the games that they were playing. Like I had a journal that I started keeping about things that were going on where I'd get invited to go over there. And, you know, when polyamory, like, you have to get very particular about the time that you have with your different partners. You have this day, you have this day, you have this day, so on and so forth. 
you know, you got to be really mindful about how you're using your time. So the time that I was supposed to have with her, I had one journal entry where I'm like, I came over at about two o'clock in the afternoon. She was off doing other things, hanging out with this other male roommate of theirs and didn't even talk to me or like pay attention to me until it was two in the morning before like I finally had like any kind of actual quality time with her. And I couldn't just go off and do something else because I already tried to do that before when she would do this. And then, you know, she just would have a meltdown on me. Um, but yeah, it was on our nights. She would constantly like disappear. And then when I'd go looking for her, I'd find her in their back garage smoking weed with the male roommate. She would eventually admit to me, yes, I am in love with our male roommate. Like, but it's a romance that can never happen because... If my wife found out, she would have a meltdown. So I just have to keep that buried. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, this sounds so very, very healthy. Oh, yeah, very much so. But this was kind of the final nail in the coffin for me somehow because, I don't know, caveman brain kicked in when soon thereafter she starts talking about, well, like, it's going to be too expensive for us to make that trip to California and they want, like, all this criteria and blah, 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 and... Well, you know, I understand where Jeff's coming from, so I think I'm just going to have the roommate get me pregnant. And you took the cheese, didn't you, sir? I unfortunately did. And while this was happening, like, I couldn't in good conscience keep this from my now ex-wife. Told her. But she seemed to be on board with things, and, you know, I've kept text messages or whatnot where she's just like, okay, yeah, like, I understand. We were never able to have kids. Like, the way that your other partner has sold it to me, it's a, we're all going to be in this together, and so I support this venture. The partner that got pregnant, because we had, like, I you know, keep in mind, this is, you know, I had three partners, and she was, like, the other partner, it's like, she was, like, I, this has to be kept a secret from her. Like, if you tell her at all, she's going to try to interfere, it's going to be a mess, like, and quite frankly, this doesn't involve her. This is none of her business, so don't ever tell her. Again, very healthy. Oh, indeed. So you can see, like, how this house of cards is about ready to crumble here. I can indeed. Because when we did get pregnant, like, me being stupid, I was just calling everybody and being like, hey, guess what? I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be a dad. And called the other partner, and I was like, like, hey, you know, I'm going to be a dad. Like... This other partner and I, like, you know, we're pregnant. And she was like, uh, how did that happen? There's something going on that you weren't telling me about. Like, well, I don't know. Just, you know, kind of the the Jeff Goldblum line, uh, you know, life uh, finds a way. <laughs> I imagine that didn't go over very well at all. No, but see, here's, you know, my conscience getting the better of me because I couldn't keep up that lie. Like, I couldn't, like, I couldn't just in good conscience. So, eventually, I, you know, I took the other partner aside and said, hey, like, I, I'm sorry, I lied to you. But I fell on the sword because I wasn't going to throw my pregnant partner under the bus, even though the pregnant partner was the one that wanted me to keep it a secret to begin with. Like, I fell on the sword. And I was just like, well, I kept this from you because I was just trying to, like, you know, I didn't want to, like, hurt anybody's feelings or anything like that. And I know that you already kind of felt excluded from the other group. And so if you knew that we were trying to have a child, then 
that would have like further hurt you and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and she understandably was like, well, you lied to me. Like you broke my heart and fuck you, I'm out. Can't blame her at all for that. But after that, this was once again, like the pregnant partner held this over my head. You lied. You're a liar. I can't trust you because you lied. And so she was mad that you didn't keep the lie that she wanted you to keep. Exactly. And by telling the truth, you lied. Exactly. That doesn't and, make my head spin at all. And when I tried to say, well, you told me that you wanted to keep this a secret. She said, no, I didn't. The hell? Yeah, this is, this is what we call gaslighting. So, yeah, I, you know, gaslit the situation. She, she gaslit me. And at that point, I just was scrambling, just trying to figure out how to keep the peace. So I just kept falling on the sword. She says that she didn't, she didn't tell me that she wanted to keep it a secret. I'm not going to fight that. I'm just going to figure out, like, what I need to do in order to get back into everybody's good graces, in order to smooth everything over so that we can go about this happily and peacefully because we've got, some, we've got something bigger than, like, the petty dramas or whatnot going on in the circle. There's now another child involved that's going to be coming into the picture. Well, it was New Year's Day, and that's when my now ex-wife, it's like, you know. New Year's Day of what year? That was New Year's Day 2017. Ah, the year life fell apart for both of us. So, <laughs> yeah, and she was like, you know, fuck this, I'm out. Been talking to my therapist about what's going on, and, like, I... I want a separation. This isn't like saying like we're done for good, but I need to separate. Like I've been talking to these other friends of mine. I'm going to be moving in with them for a while. We need to give this at least, you know, three months and see where things are at at that point. At that point, that's when my pregnant partner was like, well, fuck you. And her exact words were, I don't love you. I don't even like you. And needless to say, um, that night I wound up hitting the bottle pretty hard. Had a friend of mine, like, come over because, you know, I was kind of vague posting on Facebook. And they're like, dude, you're not right. Like, I understand, you know, you're not going into detail. But, like, I can tell, like, things are bad. So I'm coming over. They took me back to their apartment, insisted that I sleep on the couch. And in the morning, they took me to the hospital because I was not in a good way. Understandably so. Like, breakups, breakups are right uh, are rough, but try getting broken up with three times in less than two months. Well, that cheese you uh, ate there, sir, definitely was poisonous. Very much so. So, yeah, with this, I I was hospitalized for a week. I remember the first time that because it was the pregnant partner and my ex-wife, they were on the list of people that could come visit me in the hospital, and the first time that they came to visit. We're sitting there in the cafeteria, and they sit down, and the first thing that the, that the pregnant partner says to me is, well, I'm disappointed to see that you're still alive and sucking air. It's a great person to have on your visitor list, Jeff. Oh, exactly. And um, some of the other people that were in the ward with me, um, they talked to me about this, because after the second time, they're like, we don't think that these two people should come back. We understand that you're involved with both of them. You're just trying to do right. You're trying to keep your head together at the same time because they've driven you to the point where you don't want to be alive anymore. It's like, now the one that we understand is, is your wife. Like, we don't like her. She's not nice. 
but she is not being as blatantly aggressive as the other one is. And that other one, like, we're half tempted to jump across the table or because you know, the things that she says, like, that's just wrong. That's just mean. We don't know how you fell in with a woman like that, but we are so sorry. We can understand, like, if either of us were in a relationship with that woman, we'd want to kill ourselves too. Yeah, after got out of the hospital, the arrangement was my wife at the time went to stay with her friends. I was supposed to move in with the partner. Oof. That lasted all of two days because that was immediately like the, now you are my bitch. Like we are broken up. You will not touch me. You will not address me unless I want you to address me. You will not talk to me unless you're talked to. This is what you're going to pay. These are your responsibilities, the things that I expect you to do around the house. And when I feel that you're ready for it, maybe then I'll let, I'll let you invite women over. And maybe, you know, when I feel that you're ready, then maybe you can start dating again. But... You know, you got me pregnant, so, like, you're in my ball court now. I own, I own your ass. That went on for about two days before, like, I was just in tears, calling up my sister and everybody I knew, just being like, I have to get out of here. And, yeah, like, it was difficult because I didn't know where I was going to go. I went to um, stay with my sister. But she was clear, like, in a rural area, like, on the ass end of this rural town. And had a job interview in Salt Lake. And I remember it was snowing pretty heavily. And to get to the job interview, it was over an hour drive. So it's like, I don't see how I, can, how I would be able to do this. Like, driving over an hour, like, one way to, to get... To, to be able to work anywhere, to be able to, like, make a living again. So, thus started the couch surfing situation. And eventually, it's, you know, I kind of have a list now of basically my guardian angels, the people who were by my side that helped me out, to help me get back on my feet. And these are people that somehow, some way in life, I will find a way to, to repay them for the generosity that they showed me. And this this person's, like, kind of number one on the list. Because he was, at the time, he was like, okay, I think I have a solution to your dilemma. Because I have an apartment, and I have pet rent that I've been paying for two dogs. And I have a couple of months before the lease is up. Like, but I met a girl, and I like this girl more than the apartment. So I've just <laughs> been over at her place. The apartment's sitting empty. I don't want to break the lease or anything like that. The rent's been paid up. So you can stay there until the lease is up. So... And I feel really bad because, you know, when I did have my attempt, it happened in that apartment. It was because, you know, once I got out of the hospital, um, well, when you're in the hospital, they're focusing entirely on, okay, what's going on with you internally? But then when you leave the hospital, they want you to start seeing another therapist. And when I was talking with that other therapist, they were like, okay, well, now let's talk about the external environment, the external factors, what was going on there and helping you to piece things together so you can figure out exactly what's going on, what patterns need to be broken, and how to heal from here. And this is where 
I first started learning the depth of the situation that I was in because he sat me down and it's like, okay, there are eight specific signs that we look for that say you might be the victim of narcissistic abuse. If you have five of those eight of those uh, five of those eight, we can say definitely you were the victim of being abused by a narcissist. You have all eight. Like this woman that's carrying your child, like not an official diagnosis, but this sounds very much like narcissi narcissistic abuse. And the way that you reacted to everything and the way that, you know, the, the things that you told us about early childhood and how you've learned to cope or whatnot, like this is the traditional codependent narcissist cycle. You're codependent, and if you don't break out of that cycle, you're going to just wind up attracting more narcissists and getting stuck in the cycle over and over again. So that, uh, that does not sound like a fun time at all. Oh, no. And I'd say, you know, to... Because to be able to say, like, okay, well, you know, I'm truly healed, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I think the thing that I find with, um, it's easy enough to say, yeah, like, I'm healed um, when you're single. When you're, like, doing your own thing. Like, enjoying your own time. Cause, and really, you know, before you can get into a healthy relationship, you do have to take that time by yourself. And learn to be okay by yourself. And be in a situation to where you're, like, I enjoy my alone time. I enjoy doing just doing me and focusing on me. So if I'm bringing somebody else in, it's because I truly enjoy them. I truly enjoy their time, not because I feel like I need to have that other person to make me complete. But the problem with that is, is that a lot of that time that you're spending alone, it's a, are you truly working on your relationship issues and truly healing from your relationship issues? Or are you just finding bullshit to fill the void? Exactly. So they say that time heals all wounds, but I am a firm believer that it's not the time that heals it, but what you actually do with that time. Oh, exactly. So, you know, and I would say that, um, you know, really at the end of this, um, yeah, like finding out that because it's the state of Utah, I had no leg to stand on as far as being able to, to have any part of my daughter, to, to have any part of my daughter's life would find out later on that I wasn't put on the birth certificate and so on and so forth. And this is something that I constantly beat myself up over trying to figure out like, and this is also the drive to get my shit together. Cause like at some point, like I do want to have my daughter in my life. I got to figure out how to, ha how to make that happen. I have to be prepared. I have to have my shit together for when that day comes. But hearing from two different attorneys that I didn't have a leg to stand on, the one that was willing to take my money and run to begin with saying that it was going to be $5,000 even to start. That's, you know, $5,000 to start the paperwork to get on a putative father registry. Yeah. Like that's when I truly broke. And that's when I had my attempt, but waking up the next day, feeling like crap like waking up from something that like for all intents and purposes, I shouldn't have been able to survive at all. It's when I realized, okay, I think something wants to keep me here. And that's when I started kind of going down my weird rabbit hole. But um, from there I had a situation where, because when that lease was up, I had to just find some place to go. Jumped onto a lease with, um, somebody that I just 
known from being in a band with him. It was a it was a bad situation. Yeah, the crackhead hoarder situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two weeks into living with them, I you know they were like, okay, well, you should know that uh, we do drugs. Not happy hippie fun drugs either, but uh, we do crack. Can we borrow twenty bucks? <laughs> and constantly had weird people going in and out of the apartment. I could never really have anybody over. Kind of the final straw was when he was like, okay, well. Um, we've been having trouble paying rent, um, so my grandma's going to come stay with us because um, she's been helping us out. And once she moved in, it was apparent that she had been living on the street before coming in. And, yeah, she was she was hoarding stuff um, that she was taking out of the dumpsters, and we were getting in trouble with security from it. But it was obvious that she wasn't going to go anywhere, so I eventually was like, I got to get out of here. And that's when um talked to, you know, one of our mutual friends who I had been roommates with for about three years before getting an apartment with my with my now fiance. But it was moving in with him. That's when I was finally able to start the healing process. Because, I mean, if your environment isn't safe, if you're not standing on stable ground to begin with, you can't really, like, start to heal at all. Everything that you're doing is just survival mode. So would you say when you moved in with this uh, very special friend of yours, is that when the healing began? So that's when the healing began. Now, is that when the tower was done falling, everything was had kind of peaked out that way and you were on the way back up? Yep, exactly. So that means this is where we have to end the story, doesn't it? Exactly. <laughs> Um, guys, we've said it once, we'll say it again. These first couple episodes, they aren't going to be a fun ride. They'll be informative. They'll give you an idea of what's going on. But there's not a lot of butterflies in these stories, kids. Yep, exactly. So, well, that's my story. Kind of roundabout, like trying to like keep it as brief as possible. But, I mean, still, like running about a little over 45 minutes now. Not entirely brief, but... <laughs> Jeff, uh, how old would your daughter be right now? Like, my daughter, oh, that's tough, because it was, she just turned five. So she's just a little bit younger than my daughter, who's turning six in October. No. That's a, that's a hard pill to swallow, man. That is. So that's, like I said, like everything about my life now, and the thing that kind of kept me going is the just trying to get my shit together in hopes of one day, somehow, some way, being able to have my daughter in my life. It's a good goal. Well, everybody, this is Jeff's Tower episode. Um, props to him. Going out there and just spinning your, your experience into the void and not knowing who will listen is not for the faint of heart. But through owning your bullshit and being open about it, hopefully that'll empower other people and help them realize that while shit might suck, it can get better. And I promise we're going to have happier episodes. This is the A side of the story where everything fell. We're going to have the B side where the butterflies come back. Right, Jeff? Yep, indeed. So uh, just a quick reminder, if you have any questions, comments, you, you want to hear us talk about something or go more in depth on something, you can actually leave us an email. And it's uh, area code 435-538-9556. That'll go right to voicemail. There's no fear of I'm going to have to talk to somebody live. 
but we will get the voicemail, and if you're cool with it, we can even put the audio on the show. Now, we are uh, currently having episodes launched the 13th of every month, but it would be kind of amazing if we had enough listener questions and commentary where we could turn that into a companion episode during the month. Yep, so send us your questions, and we'll answer them and stuff. So this next episode is going to be my tower moment, um, which, man, this is going to be emotional for me. I'm not going to lie. But uh, after my tower episode, we will actually have our very first guest, and she is a complete badass. That's right. I said she. This is not the good old boys club. And she's looking forward to coming on here and uh, telling us her side of things from the fall to the rise. Excellent. Looking forward to that. Well, everybody, uh, I think this concludes Jeff's Tower episode. Anything you want to sign off with there, buddy? Uh, I'm, I'm going to go lick my wounds now. All right. I'm, uh, I'm going to be joining you after my episode. Bring the tequila. I'll bring the salt, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. It has been a blast, and we look forward to hearing, you, or hearing from you in the voicemail, and we'll be with you in the next episode soon. Bye, everybody. Bye.